This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr dot org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson, and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 755 for release on Sunday, August 13th, 2023. On WaveScan today. The radio station on the wonderful Isle of Dreams. Part 4 of Jonathan Marks' conversation with Dr. Graham Mitten of the BBC. And our Philippine DX report. Florida, vacation state for admiring tourists, winter haven for shivering northerners, holiday playground for traveling families, and jumping-off destination for cruise ship devotees. However, in addition to these idyllic descriptions that lure the wandering visitors and invite them to flow into Florida, we can also remember that the state of Florida has featured prominently in the international scene of shortwave radio broadcasting. Currently on the air today is the large facility of WRMI, where we're recording this program, with its 14 shortwave transmitters on a site formerly operated by Family Radio, a a little north of Lake Okeechobee, one of the largest freshwater lakes in the United States. In earlier years, commercial station WRMI had broadcast with two shortwave transmitters from a site a little north of Miami itself in Hialeah. But even earlier, before that, there was station W4XB, WBKM, WDJM, the shortwave counterpart of the AM station WIOD. Ray Robinson has that story for us. Thanks, Jeff. Back in the spring of 1925, Carl Fisher commenced the construction of an AM medium wave radio broadcasting station on Collins Island, Miami Beach in Florida. He'd already built several luxury hotels in this new vacation area, which served as a winter haven for visiting tourists from the colder northern regions. The concept in establishing this radio station back in the pioneer days when radio was still a novelty was to publicise his tourist facilities located on this sand spit, sandwiched between the Atlantic Ocean and Biscayne Bay. A Western Electric WE106A transmitter rated at 1 kilowatt and tuned to 1210 kHz was installed in a two-storey building on Collins Island that also housed the studios and offices for this new radio venture. The antenna towers were erected behind the main building. They stood 250 feet high and they were spaced 385 feet apart. The counterpoise ground system consisted of nearly 14 miles of wire buried in the saltwater marshy areas. Test broadcasts from the new WIOD were authorised by the Department of Commerce on January 5, 1926, 
and the official licence was dated four days later. A regular radio broadcasting service was commenced from the new WIOD on January the 19th, 1926, as the second radio station in the Miami area. The call sign WIOD, as is so well known in Miami, stands for Wonderful Isle of Dreams, an idyllic reference to Fisher's tourist area at Miami Beach. Over the years, station WIOD has moved several times with studios in the Fleetwood Hotel, the Miami Herald Building, the Miami News Building, on Cameo Island, in North Bay Village, in Miramar, and now in Pembroke Pines. The WIOD transmitter and antennas have also been moved on several occasions, from Collins Island, later known as Cloughton Island, to a tower on top of the Miami News Building, to Little Cameo Island, and currently in nearby North Bay Village. It was a common practice in those days to erect antenna masts on top of tall buildings in an endeavour to gain greater height and thereby extended coverage areas. However, this widespread practice was discarded a few years later, after it was discovered that the poor grounding system of a tall building actually limited the coverage area of a medium-wave transmitter. And thus, the WIOD transmitter was soon afterwards moved from the tall Miami building to Little Cameo Island. Among the other changes and developments experienced by WIOD were changes in call sign from WIOD to WCKR, and then back again to WIOD. The transmitter power, originally 1 kilowatt, was increased to 5 kilowatts in 1941 and to 10 kilowatts in 1981. A CP, or construction permit, was approved by the FCC in 2017 for an increase to 50,000 watts day, 20,000 watts night, from yet another transmitter site, but this has never been built by the current owners, iHeartMedia. Likewise, there have been several changes in frequency, seven in all, though the current channel, 610 kHz, has been in use continuously since 1937. For much of its broadcast history, WIOD was an easy-listening music station with top 40 hits during the evenings during the 60s and 70s. In 1989, the station switched to a news talk format, which is now branded as News Radio 610 WIOD, Miami's news, traffic and weather station. WIOD, Miami, WBGG FM, HD2, Fort Lauderdale. Available everywhere with the iHeartRadio app. Now, number one for podcasting. News Radio 610, WIOD, and iHeartRadio Station. From ABC News, I'm Dave Packer. A grand jury in the classified documents case involving Donald Trump. However, as far as the international broadcasting facility is concerned, their era of shortwave broadcasting is what's of real interest and importance to us. The purposes for the parallel relay of programming on shortwave was to increase the coverage area of the AM medium wave station, to encourage winter tourism from the colder northern areas of North America, and to publicise the vacation advantages that can be discovered in Florida. In 1932, just six years after the medium wave station was launched, station WIOD announced that a shortwave transmitter was under construction. This unit, assembled by their engineering staff, was inaugurated in July of the same year, 1932, with programming in parallel with the medium-wave unit, which was on 1300 kHz at the time. Under the call sign W4XB, this new transmitter was noted internationally soon afterwards with test broadcasts in the 49-metre band. The WIOD shortwave station always operated on only the one channel, 6040 kHz. 
The printed schedule for this new broadcast operation showed a few hours in the afternoons and evenings with extended transmissions on Sundays. Interestingly, in February 1933, the shortwave transmitter W4XB was noted in Australia with test broadcasts in conjunction with Radio Manila in the Philippines. In those days, distant stations would observe a pre-arranged schedule for the purpose of exchanging live programming, and thus listeners in Florida and throughout North America had the opportunity on this occasion of hearing radio programs from a distant country, the Philippines. Throughout its entire lifetime, shortwave W4XB, WBKM, WDJM was on the air from the same two transmitters, a pair of homebrew 5 kilowatt units, always on 6040 kHz. On occasions, the station was off the air for extended periods of time due to what would be described these days as transmitter maintenance. Available information suggests that there was only ever the one location for the shortwave transmitter, and that was at the original WIOD location on Collins, or Cloughton, Island. This island is long since gone. It was taken over by a highway and a hospital, and nearby marshy areas were filled in for housing estates. As we noted, the original call sign for the shortwave transmitter was W4XB. Now you might think that call makes the station look like an amateur operation, but that was not the case. Back in that era, call signs with this type of configuration were looked upon as being experimental. They could be either amateur or professional. The X after the number indicated experimental. With armed conflict looming over the international scene in continental Europe, the Federal Licensing Authorities required all shortwave broadcasting stations in the United States to discard their experimental call signs and to register a regularised call sign, effective September 1st, 1939. During the hasty events of this crisis period, WIOD shortwave was noted for a short period of time in Australia and New Zealand with a call sign WKBM. However, shortly afterwards, the shortwave unit operated by the wonderful Isle of Dreams station WIOD became WDJM. In another directive a few months later, the licensing authorities required that all shortwave broadcasting stations in the United States shall be operating at a power of 50 kilowatts, or have submitted a CP for 50 kilowatts by April 1st, 1940. At that stage, WIOD decided to drop out of the international shortwave scene and to concentrate on local coverage on AM and later on an FM translator and an FM HD sub-channel in Fort Lauderdale. The final broadcast from shortwave WDJM, the usual relay from mediumwave WIOD, took place sometime during the month of September 1940 when the transmitter was quietly switched off for the last time. What was left of the two homebrew units, now combined into a single 10 kilowatt unit, was loaded onto a truck and taken up to Situate, Massachusetts, a few miles south of Boston. At station WRUL, the legendary Walter Lemon reactivated the equipment a few weeks later and returned it to the air at its new location with 10 kilowatts under a new call sign WRUX. During its somewhat spasmodic on-air operation over a period of eight years, station W4XB, WDJM, in Miami, Florida, was heard widely throughout North America and also in Europe and the South Pacific. This pioneer shortwave station is long since gone, and only the very oldest among us can actually remember the events as they occurred. 
These days, just about all that's known of the station can be seen in a few old and yellowed QSL cards and in old and crinkled radio magazines. These days, it's possible sometimes to come across old QSL cards issued on behalf of shortwave W4XB WDJM, and it would appear that just two different cards were issued, one for the experimental callsign W4XB and another for the subsequent regularised callsign WDJM. Interestingly, QSL cards were also issued in Boston for the same transmitter at its new location at Situate in Massachusetts, under its new callsign WRUX. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Ray Robinson, from The Voice of Hope in Los Angeles. Well, during the last few weeks, we've been presenting an interview with Dr. Graham Mitten, former head of BBC World Service Audience Research. The interview was conducted by Jonathan Marks, host of Radio Netherlands Media Network. Today, in part four of that conversation, Jonathan and Graham Mitten discuss more about radio in Africa. When do you think the uh, political influence of radio in Africa took over from newspapers? Because uh, I remember the, your, your book about mass communication. It starts with a, lo- a lo- lot of stuff about, uh, about uh, press. Well, yes, I mean, the, the, the early nationalist movements in Africa uh, spread their message through pr- the printed word. There was no there was no radio, and if the, what radio there was wasn't available to African nationalists, they weren't allowed to say anything, and they were ignored. So the printed word was very, very important to them. Um, and uh, if you think all, all the, 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 the major African leaders... Uh, whether they were Francophone or Anglophone, if we had Banyi, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Zikwe in, in Nigeria, Jomo Kenyatta, Julius Nyerere, Eduardo Mondlan, in, they all used uh, the, the printed word. Uh, funnily enough, the BBC did give voice to uh, to many nationalist leaders like Kaunda, Nyerere, uh, Kenyatta and others who were actually heard on the BBC but they weren't often heard on the radio stations in their own countries. The, the, the colonial authorities may have pretended to be impartial and so on, but they weren't. I mean, they, they weren't. And by the way, that's another story, of course. It's very, all very well for the British and the French and other European countries to tut, tut, tut at the, at the di- dictatorial ways of African nations after independence, as far as broadcasting was concerned. But that's where they got it from. 52... Countries in Africa became gradually one by one independent, and all of them, without exception, inherited monopolistic broadcasting services. There wasn't a single private radio station. It, will you just hand, hand that my book? And that book, I state, there were two private radio stations. That book was published in 1983. There were three or two, two or three independent private radios in Africa at that time. Ten years later, there were thousands. What changed? It was the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, uh, the deregulation of radio in Africa and in most of the world. Yes, I, I remember talking to Soleil Isiako, who worked in the French Department of Radio Netherlands and was v- very high up in, uh, in uh, Benin culture. And mm-hmm. he tells this marvellous story about um, Radio Rural or the community radio. But it, this, it, this is bigger than... Uh, uh, community radio, this is rural radio, and it was mainly aimed at the farmers. And the, the, the people who really supported that were the Canadians, because they set up farm radio, which is still around today, mm. and they, they sent scripts in English and French 
uh, about local crops, um, about farming. Uh, Soleil was a rebel. They, they wanted him out of the capital, so they sent him north to um, uh, northern Benin, and they, they made him in charge of the, uh, the rural radio. And it, it turned out to have a huge political influence, partly because it was listening to what, what, what the farmers were saying and, and complaining about things that, you know, were right and, and were wrong. Uh, central government thought that uh, rural radio wasn't important. I'm afraid the, it's difficult to find... It, it, it's certainly true in the 60s and 70s. It's changed quite a bit now. I also want to bring up the name of Bernard Bumpus. Because when I first contacted uh, BBC External Services, uh, I, I made my first documentary, which was actually about propaganda. And I remember coming to London with my U.S. tape recorder to interview a guy called Bernard Bumpus, who I understand was... Uh, well, <laughs> uh, Googling it, I, I discovered that um, when he left the BBC, he became an international expert in 19th century ceramics. Uh, 20th, um, 20th century, actually. Really? Yeah, he he was an amazing uh, man uh, for that. Uh, that was his real love, real hobby. It was more than just a hobby. He was the leading expert in Britain on uh, an extraordinary development. It was prom the development came from really from Woolworths. Would you believe it? Woolworths saw a market opportunity to sell artistic ceramics from its shops in the 1930s and it was very successful you can't think of Woolworths as being you know put money into art but they did and they created a popular genre of pottery and of course most of this stuff was broken but it, it does actually survive and it wasn't just Woolworths but just Woolworths did actually popularize people buying uh, ceramics it wasn't cheap but it was a lot cheaper than if you bought it in arty shops so he got very interested in in uh, in that and and developed it as a kind of he was a very cultured man. He was married also to Judith Bumpus. They're both dead now, I'm afraid. Sorry, I'm very sorry about Judith because Judith is a lot younger than Bernard. If Bernard were alive today, he would be. Uh, I could work. He was born in 1922, so he would be 99 if he were alive today. His his wife was about 20 years younger than him, but she died more recently. Uh, she was a sorry. She was a very skilled and very uh, competent producer of feature document features and documentaries on BBC on BBC domestic radio, mainly on the home service, especially doing programmes on radio about art. Can you imagine? That's quite a challenge. And she was very very good at it. So the two were a cultured pair. He wasn't really an expert in audience research. He became head of audience research, I suppose, because he was good managed, seen as a good manager and a good safe pair of hands. To run it and actually to his credit he became a good audience researcher and wrote some very good material for unesco during that period when they were looking at the balance of power in the world between the north and the south in terms of access to communication and so on and so forth and you can find his work at unesco in the unesco list of publications and you took over from him I took over from him. He took over from from uh, uh, Mrs. Digby Worsley, who who um, who uh, retired in nineteen seventy eight or so, and she had taken over from the famous Asher Lee. Asher Lee was an extraordinary man. He created the department during the war, um, and I'm currently researching 
what he did and how it all happened. He was an extraordinary man. Uh, what, 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 was, what was he trying to do? Justify or, or trying to work out whether the broadcasts from uh, the UK were having any influence? More than, more than that. Actually, I'm writing a history of uh, of the external services or world service or empire service, whichever you like to call it. It had different names at different times. From the beginning, it started in 1932, and I was given a grant by the Open University to look into the background of the world service, empire service, in terms of audiences and audience research. And I wrote some articles which were peer-reviewed and published in academic journals, which actually look at that period of the 1930s. I was astonished to find that Lord Reith, when he asked somebody to look into the possibility of international broadcasting, that they actually did some research. They wrote to various sources to try and find out, did people have shortwave radios? Did they use the shortwave part of their radio to listen to anything? What did they listen to? All that kind of stuff. It wasn't systematic research in terms of doing surveys, but it was what we call nowadays desk research. You were trying to find out from existing sources what we knew about the audience and what we knew about the potential. And very impressive some of that work was. Reith believed that international radio, the Empire Service, which he started in 1932, would mostly reach people around the empire only by rebroadcasts. The BBC transmission from Daventry, or Droitwich, Daventry, would, would be received by the radio stations in Guyana, Gold Coast, Fiji, or wherever it was, and then be retransmitted on the local medium wave. That, of course, did happen. But we soon found out in the 1930s that most of the listening was to shortwave directly on people's home radio sets. So that was discovered by, uh, by the research at those, that time was not, actually had not yet arrived, but the research was done. There wasn't a department called audience research, but they put questionnaires in, 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 uh, the, the, in, in, the, in the mail, and I've seen some of those, they came back and they were analyzed. So they did some mail research. That that uh, that point you've just made about uh, relays is actually quite interesting because if you look in the Philips archives in Eindhoven, they have the original so-called PCJ J transmitter, which was built in 1927. Philips was obviously wanting to sell radio sets, right? So and if there was nothing to listen to, people didn't buy it. Mm. So, um, but I found evidence that they did relay medium wave broadcasts from from Daventry. Uh, to uh, target areas in South Africa and also in uh, what was then British India. Uh, feedback from through the di diplomatic corps came by saying, so why do we have to listen to the BBC via a Dutch transmitter? That's a very good point. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. That was Dr. Graham Mitten, former head of audience research at the BBC World Service, speaking with Jonathan Marks on Media Network Vintage Vault which is available on the internet. Right now, let's go to Henry Umarhai in the Philippines. Hello, everyone. To all of dear shortwave listeners, wherever you are, welcome to the August 13th edition of the Philippine DX. It's report number 197. I'm Henry Umarhai in Bacolod City. 
Negros Occidental Central Philippines. Glad to be back and thank you for listening. I would like to thank the following DXers for sending a session report most recently. Mr. Eugene Kornikan in Moscow, Russia. Mr. Jan Zachary Alvarez in Cavite in the Philippines. And Mr. Anatoly Klefov in Moscow, Russia. To all of you, thank you very much. Reception logs for July 20. 23 July 2 NSK World Radio Japan on 13860 in Japanese from Yamata at 0807 SIO 433 July 2 Voice of Korea on 13760 in Russian from Kujang at 0809 SIO 443 July 9 KBS World Radio 9570 in Korean from Kinche at 0834 SIO 444 July 9 RTMY Limbang FM on 11.65 in Malayalam from Kajang at 0830 SIO 444 July 9 BBC World Service on 15.310 in Pasto from Alsila at 11.07 SIO 555 July 9 Transworld Radio KTWR on 11.965 in English from Mariso Guam at 11.14 SIO 555 July 16 FBC Radio on 9795 in Vietnamese from Ibasambales at 11.23 SIO 433 July 16 China Radio International on 11.955 in Filipino from Kunming Aning at 11.46 SIO 444 July 16 Voice of America on 12.030 in English from Tinang at 11.53 SIO 444 July 23 Rich Beyond Australia on 11.900 in Hindi from Kununura at 12.30 SIO 333. July 23, Transworld Radio KTWR on 12.040 in Gaukarin from Guam at 12.40 SIO 433. July 23, Adventist World Radio on 12.150 in Cantonese from Trincomalee at 12.42 SIO 444. And July 30, Rich Beyond Australia on 9580 in Korean Pram at 0938 SIO444. Send us your comments, suggestions, reception logs, and information to PilipinasDX at gmail.com. That's P-I-L-I-P-I-N-S-D-X for PilipinasDX at gmail.com. This has been Henry Umaday for WaveScan in Bacolod City, Negros Occidental Central, Philippines, Mabuhay, at maraming salamat po. Thank you, Henry. Uh, Henry Umatai tells us that uh, it's rainy season in the Philippines right now, and a lot of flooding everywhere in the country. But thankfully, he's in a location that's not a flood-prone area. Down to Florida, we welcome you to the Sunshine State. They're kicking back and soaking up the rays every day in Florida. Well, thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, we'll bring you a major shortwave station manager's experiences in dealing with a typhoon. And we'll have more from Dr. Graham Mitten about BBC audience research. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam. AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. 
Other correspondence and perception reports can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone. We got rockets on the East Coast go up all the time. Ain't no place like it that you'd ever find. Bingo, shuffleboard, fishing too. You see that cat man? His hair was blue down in Florida. Welcome you to the Sunshine State We're kicking back and soaking up the rays Every day in Florida It's like a Caribbean holiday Every day in Florida This is the Adventist World Radio and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is bible at awr.org. Or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. 